the assumption of liberals and leftists that we remain the center of things is wrong. Um, this podcast, my book, we're fringe. Tucker Carlson, that's the mainstream. Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril McLeico. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Jeff Charlotte is the best-selling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, made into a Netflix documentary series. He's the Frederick Sessions BB Class of 1935, professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. His newest book is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, described by the New York Times as riveting and the Washington Post as journalism as art. Today, we talk to him about his new book and the growing fascist threat to American democracy. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to The Signal. Hi, Cyril. Good to be with you. Before we dive into your reporting that you've done for your new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, could you explain to listeners your approach to reporting and the type of journalism you practice? Uh, you know, I, I first learned it as uh, literary journalism, which was to say uh, so-called art of fact, um, which is uh, or, or sometimes called immersion journalism. Immersion journalism, imagine yourself. You want to go and you want to tell a story about, I don't know, anything, a firehouse or the fascism of the moment. Um, you don't go and stand on the outside with your notepad. You go get in the middle of it. You go get uh overwhelmed by it. And that's why I think I, I take uh, a term, uh, a friend of mine, Bill Wasik, an editor at the time said, you know, really it's submersion journalism. You get in over your head, you get lost a little bit. And the story that you tell is you finding your way out of the world into which you've entered in this case, the, the fascist strain in American life now. The fascist political project in the United States in this moment is a movement of movements. As, as you've noted, it's, it's not monolithic by any means. Can you guide listeners through the main strains of this political virus infecting more and more Americans on the political right? Yeah, I think, I think you know, it, it's a little bit of a bad news, good news kind of deal in the sense that uh, um, what I call fascism, and I do not use the term lightly, so, so much so that in, in a 2008 book of mine, The Family, uh, I actually said, look, I don't think full fascism is possible in America, partly because of Christian fundamentalism. It'll stand in the way of that. And I was wrong. And I write in the undertow, I was wrong. Um, what happens is you need to understand such movements as social movements. Plenty of other folks think, oh, the social movements are good. No, social movements are whatever you make of them. 
it, they're what happens when a lot of different tendencies converge. So right now in the fascism and what Trump was able to do, he was able to bring the business conservatism along. He was able to bring the white evangelicals along. He was able to bring what used to be called the alt-right and now let's just call it the militias, the proud boys, the oath keepers, the three percenters, um, the transgressive uh, characters along. We have... Um, we have the gamers, the, the militant right-wing gamers, all of these folks, some of whom would not talk to one another, some of whom viewed each other with great disdain, uh, the Catholic, the intellectual Catholic right, this is not to speak of all Catholics, but the Catholic far right, uh, now making common cause with uh, Protestant evangelicals. These are some of the tendencies. So that's the bad news is that they're all going in the same direction. The good news is that means there's fault lines. That means it is not a monolith. Um, it means this is not one great big gargantuan, you know, blah rolling over us. Why and how is Donald Trump able to activate these movements? And like you just mentioned, often disparate tendencies that seem to be latent for the last few decades, or, you know, maybe they were always there, but just not as strong, not as comfortable or emboldened to express themselves publicly. And instead, we're working more quietly in the shadows because, you know, if we're being honest, white Christian nationalism and, you know, a lot of these tendencies uh, that you just mentioned in the broader fascist movement have definitely moved from the margins to the mainstreams of the Republican Party. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's a little bit why I titled the book The Undertow, which is to say, what are these currents that have been pulling us toward this place? I've been writing about right wing movements for 20 years. Um, and, uh, and some of the book, in fact, sort of precedes what I call the Trumpocene, uh, um, and looking at some of the currents that were feeding into it, there were fringe movements that have moved into the mainstream. But the, the thing that helped me understand what Trump was capable of doing when he descended on his golden escalator in, uh, 2015, um, I'd spent years looking at, uh, American right-wing Christian nationalists. Um, not the sweaty pulpit pounders, you know, the TV evangel uh, evangelicals, but the folks who are looking overseas, who are uh, throughout American politics and American power, uh, congressmen, senators, and so on. And the kind of authoritarianism they had long been exporting and supporting in other countries. Donald Trump exemplified that. Donald Trump was the character that someone like Senator Jim, uh, uh, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma or Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, these were the figures who they had been funneling money to in smaller countries. And now here he was coming down our escalator. And I said, oh, there's a project for that. There's a way of understanding that. Um, and the very buffoonery of which he certainly is capable and, and exemplifies him, and which led liberals to dismiss him. Oh, this guy's a clown, right? as if clowns aren't entertaining and as if politics isn't driven by entertainment. Um, I hear a lot of, uh, even now, I can't believe here we are coming up on 2024 and we see some of the political press doing the same dumb thing, dismissing some of Trump's antics as just theater. What do you mean just theater? Theater is powerful. Theater, I'm a storyteller. I believe that telling stories is powerful. The man is good at storing, telling stories. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but uh, I 
been on the Trump trail from 2015 on, and I've watched it mutate to the point where, as a preacher in Omaha told me, he said, Trump is coming back, whether the man himself or his spirit in the flesh of another, right? Trumpism has gone beyond Trump. Staying on the topic of, you know, theater and, and, and storytelling, what is the role of mythology in the fascist rewriting of American history and the use of so-called heroes and martyrs, say like Ashley Babbitt, who you write about in the book? Ashley Babbitt is in some ways a central figure of this book, The Undertow, and, and the book began to take the shape that it has on January 6, 2021, uh, when I watched as many of us did almost live, it was looped very shortly thereafter, after she was killed, this 35-year-old white woman, Air Force veteran from Southern California, climbs through a broken window inside the Capitol and is shot dead by a Capitol police officer. And the Capitol police officer is a black man, and Ashley Babbitt's a white woman. And as soon as I saw that, as a student of American mythology, I understood how this was going to play. Within days, it did. That's a very old story in American life. It's the lynching story. It's the story of innocent white womanhood uh, fallen prey to a black predator. Uh, this, not too many people have seen anymore a movie called uh, The Birth of a Nation, 1915, D.W. Griffiths. But you have seen it in a sense because it is the template from which Hollywood grows one of the most influential films of movie history. Um, a white woman leaps off a cliff to her death to escape a supposed black predator. Uh, it's, it's a racist movie shown in its day in the White House. The movie glorifies the Klan, glorifies white supremacy. So I knew they were going to do that with Ashley, and I knew that if I wanted to understand what was going to happen in the post-Trump era, and by post-Trump, I just mean the post-Trump presidency era, um, I had to engage with, as you say, mythology. The book, The Undertow is in some ways, this undertow that's pulling us out, it's the myth. It's the myths of American life, right? As we come to believe in the stories more than the facts. Um, and uh, I think, uh, it's, it's why I write in the book a lot about movies, the movies that we tell ourselves. The book is subtitled Scenes from a Slow Civil War. So many of the militiamen that I encountered in my travels who believe in a civil war, when you ask them what they think that'll look like, they, they come to movies. One speaks of the movie 300, uh, uh, a Zack Snyder bloodfest, 300 Spartans versus a Persian horde. Others speak of Red Dawn. This uh, 1980s movie, I think remade, um, Patrick, I know the 1980s one because I'm old, Patrick Swayze and a group of high school football players up in the hills fighting the Russian invasion. This is what they imagine. They imagine the romance of movies. And this is what's, that romance is what's driving us toward the brink. We have to come back from the mythology. We have to come back into the real. In your book, you write about the loss that, many of the people you interviewed feel a loss that curdles into fury and hate or denial and especially delusion. What, what is this loss that you're speaking of? I mean, let me tell the story in terms of Ashley Babbitt, this figure who I, I what I did is I, I, when I saw that, I knew she was going to be a central figure to the book. 
and I ended up flying out to, I'm, I live in Vermont. I, I flew out to Sacramento, California, where her mother was holding a rally. Justice for Ashley Babbitt had turned into a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. And I followed her ghost, as it were, across the country, talking to these people who felt animated by it. And Ashley Babbitt herself, I dug into her life. Ashley Babbitt, two-time Obama voter, considered herself a liberal Democrat most of her life, a person who lived in a very blue area in Southern California, loved the beach, had a nice life in many ways, had lemon trees and lime trees and avocado trees in her yard, had a pool business. Um, and yet, and yet, her business got terribly into debt and houselessness was a real serious problem in her neighborhood. And she didn't have the language with which to understand it. One day a man defecated on her lawn. And um, instead of saying, hey, how is it that our system has so failed these people that they're here? She saw Donald Trump and, uh, and Halloween of 2016 was her first tweet. Hashtag love, Donald Trump. Here was this guy who gave her license to feel angry. To feel angry about, you know, the crap in her front yard. Um, and to not think about the condition of that person, right? She had lost something. She had lost something to, frankly, capitalism. She didn't know how to manage it. She had lost something to the pandemic, as we all have. Um, so many of the folks I spoke to, uh, they would talk about climate, but they didn't believe in climate change. I would go to militia churches and they would talk about God and the drought outside and the fire in the sky, out west, smoke everywhere, filling the sky, right? But they didn't want to call climate change. This was grief unprocessed, grief without mourning, which they, as uh, yes, curdled. It curdled into anger, into hate. There is pain in the world. There is suffering. These people have felt grief like everybody else. They're the folks who, instead of trying to process that, they pass their pain on to others. They pass the pain on to others through violence and blame and hate. So they're exploiting this economic pain. These movements are exploiting this economic pain and kind of marshalling it into more racist politics? I would argue that uh, the saying the movement is exploiting the pain is an accurate assessment of someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or, or uh, Roger Stone, right? But I think the mistake, and I think the mistake of a lot of the political press is focusing on those elite actors. Uh, how many profiles have we read of Ron DeSantis now? Uh, I've read six. They've all been unilluminating, even by writers who I otherwise admire, um, because the reality is this movement, Trumpism, Trumpism, not Trump, of which DeSantis is a part, whether he wants to be or not, this movement has now gathered steam and is going forward without them. Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're following the movement. They're not leading the movement. So yes, they are trying to exploit it. They're trying to get their surfboards out there on that wave and ride it. Uh, but the movement itself is bigger and drawing on deeper veins of American mythology and to resist it. And by resisting, I think mostly what we do is we build something more beautiful, more democratic, more generous. Uh, 
um, uh, we need to understand what's there. Because, like, is look, I take pleasure in Trump being indicted tomorrow. I do. Um, and even leaving aside the question, does this help him politically or not? Even leaving aside that, it's not the silver bullet. There's not going to be a silver bullet for this movement because it's not a werewolf. It's a movement. We're going to have to build a bigger movement in response. One of the theaters of the fascist war on America um, is public education. And in your own reporting for the book that, you know, this kind of rears its head a little bit. We hear from people you spoke with who repeat right wing canards about you know critical race theory, the emasculating boys because of feminists who have captured education. Um, schools are making kids gay, etc. If we allow the far right to capture public education and use censorship and nationalist curricula like Hillsdale 1776 curriculum, have we lost? Well, I, I'd like to question your terms. Uh, there's two words you use there that I'm not sure if really hold, if and we. Um, uh, what do you mean if? They have captured public education in two of the largest states, Texas and Florida, right? Texas, which has long determined what's going on in textbooks. And if you're following the reporting, it's, and I've been reporting on textbooks for a long time because I'm interested in, as Joan Didion, the great essayist Joan Didion says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. That includes textbooks. In a previous book, I, I did an examination of all the textbooks used in Christian right schools and so on. Um, so now we have this, uh, maybe people have seen this news that uh, we're going to be teaching in our textbooks now, Rosa Parks without mention of race. Some people didn't want some other people to ride in the front of the bus. <laughs> Who knows why? Um, and, uh, and we're certainly not going to be talking about queerness. So, so the if I, I challenge, right? Texas and Florida. Florida just abolished tenure. Um, for all practical purposes, that will be coming to a state near you, wherever you are, right? Um, that is a wave that's coming. It doesn't mean it's inevitable. Inevitability is a fascist lie, right? But it means it's coming and we better do something. Then the we, the, the we, I think one of the things I wanted to get across in this book and people sometimes say, well, you ended up talking to all these uh, militant folks and these right-wing folks. Why did you talk to them? Because they were who was there. Uh, uh, some friends, well, I was reporting in Wisconsin uh, pretty extensively after the downfall of Roe, when Wisconsin became the first blue state to make abortion completely illegal, revert to 1849 law. And some friends of mine who are rural Wisconsin folks, uh, you know, gun-owning rural Wisconsin folks, but queer folks. So they're a little bit different. They're like, why do you keep talking to these angry guys? So I tried. And I'm talking to this lovely man. Uh, and he's he makes fishing rods. And that's what he does. He spends his days making beautiful fishing rods. And I think I found him, the gentle the gentle guy. But then he starts talking. He, he, here's where he's at on this question of civil war. He says it's already over. And we, by which he means whiteness, already lost. Um, I think the assumption of liberals and leftists that we remain the center of things is wrong. Um, this podcast, my book, we're fringe. Tucker Carlson, that's the mainstream. We're on the margins and we have to reorient ourselves to say, hey, we're on the margins. We're trying to build. We're not trying to hold on. We're not trying to preserve democracy like it's in a jam jar. 
we are trying to achieve a democracy we have not yet known. It's a little horrifying, but important to recognize and organizing moving forward. <laughs> oh, man, we're trying to achieve. We're going we're to achieve a democracy we have not yet known. It's um, going to be great. You're gonna okay, so let, let's go to this concept of slow civil war. You know, wh- what exactly do you mean by that? And what will this, like, I'm, I'm envisioning it as kind of like an insurgency, like, what does it look like? What does it employ like low intensity conflict tactics? Walk us through that. So I came to the term civil war, just as I came to the term fascism, very reluctantly. Uh, you know, in the past, I'd said fascism was impossible in America. If you'd asked me even f- six years ago, I would have said civil war. Don't be absurd. Right. But after January 6, 2021, I saw a survey of academic historians. I'm married to an academic historian. I know how slowly history moves most of the time. History is a study in some ways of inertia. Um, It's a conservative and aesthetically conservative, not politically conservative discipline, right? They're not quick to declare change. And yet here were all these historians saying, yeah, this is closer to civil war than we have been since 1860. And these are the folks who know that this is not the first time we've had political violence or even the most. We had more political violence in the 1960s and the 1930s um, and other periods, right? But here we are. And so I set out at that time, this is the, 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 the spring of 2021, even then, to speak of civil war was to get yourself marked as an alarmist, a hysteric, a shrill leftist. Now we had David French, a establishment conservative writer writing in the New York Times saying, yeah, this is this is real. This is something that could happen. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene once dismissed as a fringe character, now perhaps the second most powerful person in the Republican Party in terms of influence saying, let's have a national divorce. So in part, the slow civil war is a study of rhetoric. What is the, what is the language? What, what are the stories we tell ourselves in order to live? And in part, it's a recognition that people ask me a lot of the time. They say, do you think there could be violence? And I say, what do you mean? Do I think there could be violence? There is violence. There are casualties all over the country. There's a chapter in the book called TikTok. It's about a woman who I call Evelyn because, as I say, there are Evelyns everywhere. She was a former lefty, got absorbed by QAnon, decided one day that she was going to hashtag save the children, one of their slogans, got in her little red Fiero, her little beat up used car, and went ramming into other people's cars, people who she thought were stealing children. Thank God nobody was badly hurt. She's arrested. Her life is ruined. Um, This didn't make national news. It didn't even make local news in, in Texas where it happened. This it was like a, a two-line story. You had to dig into it to discover what she's doing. We hear about QAnon murders. We don't hear about QAnon assaults. We don't hear about QAnon kidnappings. We don't hear about families broken. We hear every now and then about a woman who is denied or a pregnant person who was denied uh, reproductive care to the point of risk. This is happening all over the country. Pregnant people are bleeding out for lack of abortion care. Those are casualties of the slow civil war. If you pay attention every single weekend and oftentimes more often around the country are Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters lining up with their AR-15s outside of schools, libraries, hospitals. Shots not fired. Thank God. How often can you line up men with guns without shots not being fired? 
That's what I mean by the slow civil war. Finally, let's um, end with the we again. What what should an effective popular front anti-fascism look like? And in your opinion, what strategies and tactics should it employ? I'm not a strategist. I'm a writer. Um, you know, and I, I wrote about the right for a long time and I veered away from it. And I have a, a an adolescent queer kid who I'm trying to convince not to be afraid of the world, even as up to 20 states now have passed laws trying to deny their existence, right? So I got back into it and I thought, what could I do, right? What I'm do- good at or hope to be good at is talking to folks, gathering the stories, telling the stories. Um, I'm kind of an all hands on deck person. However you want to resist fascism, whether it's electorally or whether it's in the streets, uh, whether it's through art or on the page. Um, thank you. That's, that's where I see it. Um, uh, this, is, this is a critical moment. As I say, I've been writing about the right wing for 20 years. This is something new. And I know there are continuities, but we have to recognize that there are changes. There is something new. So I said to my kid, this is what I can do. I can make this book, The Undertow. This book is for your future. I open and close it with some hope, some uh, stories I won't get into right now, but long forgotten figures from the long struggle for freedom. Uh, And I think that's important to remember. This struggle is long. There's other movements that have been defeated, good movements, but they fought the good fight. And remembering them, remembering their imagination, threading it through all this darkness, that is what I, as a writer, can offer. I don't have tactics. I don't have, uh, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, support your local progressive organizations, sure. Um, but I don't have a three-step plan. I don't think there is a three-step plan right now. Um, I think it's uh, look up, look around you, listen, tell stories, get involved, um, fight for your future. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Everyone, you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Charlotte. And also, please buy his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, at your local bookstore. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, Sarah. Take care. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McGlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. <laughs> <laughs>